Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, why was Detroit mother Portia Woodruff, eight months pregnant, arrested and held 11 hours by police accusing her of robbery and carjacking? Because Woodruff was arrested based on facial recognition technology. The Wayne County prosecutor still contends that Woodruff's charges, dismissed a month later, were appropriate based upon the facts. Those facts increasingly involve the use of technology that has been proven wrong. The New York Times report on Woodruff helpfully links to articles like Another Arrest and Jail Time Due to a Bad Facial Recognition Match and Wrongfully Accused by an Algorithm. And it's especially wrong when it comes to, you won't be surprised, black people. Facial recognition has been deemed harmful in principle and in practice for years now. We talked in February 2019 with Shankar Narayan, director of the Technology and Liberty Project at the ACLU of Washington State. We'll hear that conversation again today. Also on the show, listeners may know a federal court has, at least for now, blocked Biden administration efforts to forgive the debt of student borrowers whose colleges lied to them or suddenly disappeared. The White House seems to be looking for ways to ease student loan debt more broadly, but not really presenting an unapologetic, coherent picture of why and what the impacts would be. We talked about that with Braxton Brewington of the Debt Collective in March 2022. We'll revisit that conversation today as well. That's coming up, but first a quick look back at some recent press. In the context of Donald Trump and a Republican Party dedicated to overturning Democratic order to solidify power, New York Times columnist David Brooks is often presented as a sane voice of the old-school conservative movement, in short, a never-Trumper. His response to the latest Trump indictment might therefore seem surprising, but as Ari Paul writes for FAIR.org, you can take a clue from the hearty approval from Fox News that said that Brooks's August 2nd column exposed the anti-Trump class as self-dealing jerks, and from the executive editor of the Washington Examiner, who declared confusingly that Brooks's piece would, quote, be criticized angrily because it shows empathy and elite introspection, which will prove it correct, close quote. In the piece, Brooks encourages anti-Trumpers like himself to think of themselves as the bad guys, because while they think the Republican base's support for Trump is rooted in bigotry, it actually derives from, quote, the class war between the professionals and the workers, close quote. Brooks claims to understand why, quote, people in less educated classes would conclude that they are under economic, political, cultural, and moral assault, close quote, and why they have, quote, rallied around Trump as their best warrior against the educated class, close quote. The Timesian is employing a time-honored trick wherein he presents himself as an expert on salt-of-the-earth residents of the heartland whom elites have ignored and wronged. 
suggesting our critical gaze should be cast on supposedly progressive elite institutions and not on bigotry and authoritarianism or on the real causes of the economic inequality he pretends to care about. In textbook Script Flipping, Brooks writes, quote, Like all elites, we use language and mores as tools to recognize one another and exclude others. Using words like problematic, cisgender, Latinx, and intersectional is a sure sign that you've got cultural capital coming out of your ears. Meanwhile, members of the less educated classes have to walk on eggshells because they never know when we've changed the usage rules so that something that was sayable five years ago now gets you fired, close quote. The problem is, in reality, it's people who say Latinx or think intersectionally or aren't cisgender who have to walk on eggshells, not because of social stigma, but because of punitive laws based by authoritarian legislatures, like Arkansas banning state agencies from using the term Latinx, or Florida banning AP psychology classes that talk about gender identity, or all the laws against breathing the words critical race theory, or about trans people being human beings. Posing as an anti-Trump conservative, Brooks supports the fiction that Trump, a billionaire, is right that the real threat to workers aren't the bosses who move jobs overseas or break unions or advocate against safety, but it's really some annoying grad school brat reading Judith Butler. You could write all this off as Brooks being Brooks, but as the danger rises from Trump and his violent fascistic political movement, it's meaningful that the Times chin strokers are stoking a fiction about cultural divides that distracts from class inequality driven by politicians from both parties. Media coverage of technological developments often conveys an air of inevitability. Tools, once created, must be used, and businesses exist to make money from them. But in early 2019, more than 85 groups, including the War Resisters League, the Government Accountability Project, Data for Black Lives, and 18 Million Rising, signed letters to Microsoft, Amazon, and Google, demanding that the companies commit not to sell face surveillance technology to the government. The coalition cited not the mere potential for such technology to be used to target vulnerable communities, but the history of technology being turned to that purpose. In February 2019, Counterspin spoke with Shankar Narayan, director of the Technology and Liberty Project at the ACLU of Washington, Seattle. I asked him to outline the actual concerns the coalition represented. There is a long history of surveillance tools being adopted under the rubric of exactly the same kind of public safety concerns that you talked about. I think it's often the lead-in to the widespread adoption of a technology that it's going to help catch someone in one of the worst possible situations. But of course, I think it's important to tie this back to the long history of use of surveillance technologies that will particularly impact vulnerable communities. And those are the groups that make up this coalition. Groups such as immigrants, communities of color, religious minorities, even domestic violence and sexual assault survivors 
all of those are represented here. And I think their point is that it's not what could go wrong. It's what has gone wrong when surveillance technologies have been used in the past because they have had such a disproportionate effect on those very communities. So the entire history of the 20th century has been one of use of the surveillance tools of the day. One example is the civil rights movement, where virtually every major civil rights leader had a dossier on them in government hands that was fed by infiltration. It was fed by bugging, simply following people around. They even had their version of fake news where the government would fake a letter from one activist to the other with the stated goal of trying to drive them apart from each other and weaken the movement. You know, that's far from the only example. Even prior to that, the Japanese incarceration, another great example, where we have activists in Seattle who have talked to incarceration survivors who talked about how in fact, the incarceration itself was illegal and unconstitutional, as the Supreme Court later declared. But the existence of those safeguards didn't stop the infrastructure from being misused. There was a technological back end that included a registration system so that when the order was given to incarcerate Japanese people in our area, they knew exactly where to find those people and send them to the incarceration camps. A powerful quote that I heard from one of our activists was, I was a loyal American, but I couldn't do anything about the incarceration because my crime was my face. And I think that should be particularly chilling, given that we now see face surveillance as potentially game-changing technology that can make its way into government hands without checks and without even this prior discussion of how the tool will be used. And I'd like to say as well that, you know, lest we think that this is all in the past. Even since 9-11, for example, the Muslim community in New York City was surveilled using license plate readers and other technologies without suspicion and without warrant in an operation that failed to net a single terrorist. Tools like social media monitoring have been used against Black Lives Matter and Occupy Wall Street. So, you know, we see the, the echoes of the past and how these technologies are being used today. And that's why we should be particularly concerned, given the power of facial recognition. Well, one of the concerns that crops up in what coverage we do see has to do with just the quality of the technology. You know, we may hear that it's not especially good, this facial recognition technology, particularly at recognizing uh, black faces and brown faces. But I have also heard that Perhaps we want to be careful about making this racial bias in the technology the crux of our opposition because, for example, the Chinese state facial recognition system had that problem and their response was to buy a driver's license database from an African state and then, you know, improve the ability of the data to, in fact, recognize um, black and brown faces. But we're not really calling essentially for the tool to be better. That's not really the goal precisely, is it? No, it is absolutely not. And I think I should make clear that facial recognition or face surveillance is a uniquely dangerous technology that we believe should not be sold to the government. Even a perfectly functioning, unbiased facial recognition system is extremely dangerous. That's because 
this technology gives the government unprecedented power to track people, surveil who they are, where they go, and who they know across geographies, across time. You don't have to drive your car if you want to avoid license plate readers. You don't have to bring your cell phone if you don't want it to be tracked. But you can't leave your face at home, and your face print is exactly the target for these products like Amazon's recognition, Microsoft's face, that make widespread use of facial recognition technology easy and cheap. And so that's really the game changer we're talking about. In addition to that, the government doesn't have to decide ahead of time who it's going to follow around because face surveillance silent, it's undetectable, and it can be applied after the fact to any video or still image. And we know, of course, that there's more and more video and still imaging such that anything you do in a public space may well get recorded and then be subject to facial recognition if the government has that tool in its toolbox. And we also know that black and brown communities are already over-policed. They are already subject to a disproportionate amount of video and other surveillance. So one might expect that facial recognition in government hands will layer on top of that, again, even if it's perfectly functioning. This is a technology that can be used on footage from officer body cameras, from video cameras, from drones, from private surveillance, and it's easy and cheap to add to that infrastructure. So all of these concerns are before you even get to talking about the bias within the technology itself, which seems consistently demonstrated by a number of studies. I think it's difficult to buy Amazon's rebuttals to critique these studies where they say, well, you used the wrong confidence interval, or you didn't use the tool the right way, right. or we made improvements in November, and so you, know, you should have used the tool after that. Uh, you know, all of those, I think, start to sound a little bit tone deaf when you look at the broader trend of study after study showing that this tool is less accurate at identifying people of color. It's particularly bad at identifying women of color. And in addition to that, you know, we want to also add in the layer of what's called affect recognition. In other words, the use of these tools, not just to identify people, but to determine whether they're happy or sad, maybe whether they're angry, determine their level of dangerousness. Wow. There are, in fact, companies out there that purport to determine whether someone has a propensity to be a terrorist simply by analyzing their face print. Uh, and imagine, you know, an officer making a life or death decision based on a facial recognition analysis from their body camera that is biased in a way that shows uh, a black person, for example, to be more angry and dangerous than they actually are. And exactly that kind of bias has been found when using these tools. So bias is an additional layer, you know, on top of all of the concerns in building this infrastructure that we have yet to discuss, simply because agencies are already acquiring these tools really without public notice and without transparency. Well, finally, and it sounds like you're you're heading towards it, but I have seen stories on, for instance, how San Francisco might become the first U.S. city to forbid its agencies from using facial recognition technology. And I've seen opinion columns that warn about some of the dangers and concerns that we've talked about here. But I would say that I do feel that overall there's not a sense of urgency from the press corps. Media have a kind of 
well, it's out of the box now. Let's see what it does um, vibe. You know, there's a sense that it's just not plausible somehow to say don't, you know, to say no to the use of a technology. And I see that matched to some degree in the public, you know, oh, I just assume everything I do is on camera. And that makes me worried as well. Um, What finally would a press corps vitally engaged in protecting our civil rights be doing? What kind of reporting would you like to see? A really great question. And I think it connects to a much broader situation. These large technology vendors have assured us that technology is a neutral thing that's going to come in and solve the problems we have around public safety. But of course, you know, I think the the job of a responsible media would be to question those assumptions and ask about a narrative in which we as communities, and particularly the most impacted communities, are able to come together and set a values framework within which technology acts. I think as a society, our entire country is founded on this idea of civil liberties, right? That's what our constitution is. And technologies like face surveillance should not be allowed to end run around those values without a real public discussion. That was Shankar Narayan, director of the Technology and Liberty Project at the ACLU of Washington State in February 2019. In early 2022, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said, quote, Whenever I go to community meetings, it always comes up. Young and middle-aged and even some elderly, it tortures them, close quote. What was he talking about? Student loan debt. We spoke in March of 2022 with Braxton Brewington, press secretary and organizer at the group Debt Collective. He started by acknowledging the public energy around debt and student debt in particular. Well, there's a ton of energy behind student loan debt, which is now getting close to $2 trillion, the second highest household debt type behind mortgages, surpassing credit card and medical debt combined. And it's doubled in just the past decade as the cost of college has risen actually eight times faster than wages. So everyone from young people to even older borrowers are suffering grave consequences of crushing student loan debt. We're not able to purchase a home. We're having trouble starting a family or having kids, getting married. There's difficulty in just living a dignified life. It's crushing and it's dragging down our economy. And in this current moment, we now know that the president has actually the authority to broadly cancel federal student debt with an executive order. And so I think That knowledge is sort of aiding in the call for Biden to solve this crisis with just the flick of a pen. And also because, like you said, he ran on fulfilling this promise. So there's reason to suspect that Biden would take on student debt cancellation as a major issue because this is something that helped get him into office. Well, there's a reason that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer co-wrote an op-ed with Derek Johnson, who's head of the NAACP, about this, because student debt plays a particular role in the lives, and as you're saying, not just the education, but the lives um, of black people, right? 
Absolutely. Black Americans in particular, Black women in particular, are really bearing the brunt of the student debt crisis. 20 years after college, the average white borrower has paid off about 95% of their student loans, while the average Black borrower actually still owes about 95% of that student loan. So 90% of Black students are forced to borrow federal dollars to even attend college. So we've actually largely closed this gap between Black and white students as to who attends college. But on the back end, Black Americans are having much more difficult time being able to pay off that loan. They're having to take out more because we've been stripped of generational wealth and uh, more likely to go into default and face other type of life barriers and consequences to make it difficult to pay off that student debt. So Black Americans are particularly bearing the brunt of this crisis. And so, you know, that's why this is exactly a matter of racial justice. And you're getting at what I think is so huge about this moment, the very idea that we're seriously considering canceling debt in the face of what you might call folk economics. You borrowed it, you owe it, that we're able to shift the frame of this conversation, I think is very meaningful. Debt Collective talks about radical imagination. We have a society that orchestrates these situations in which to get a degree, you're told you have to incur a debt that then is going to maybe yoke you for the rest of your life. It's making it a societal issue rather than an individual issue. And that just seems major to me. Yeah, there is this belief that student debtors and debtors in the 99% in particular have signed this, it goes beyond the piece of paper, we've signed a moral contract, right. right, that we have to, we are required morally to pay back this debt. But what we know is that sort of belief and ideology is not held for the 1% who walk away from their debts all the time. That ideology is not set for major corporations who have been bailed out in recent decades, time and time again. And so what starts to become controversial is when the 99%, when working class Americans start to demand the same. And that is the ideology that we're up against. So many individuals believe that you took out this loan and this is something that you were supposed to pay back. The truth is so many people have actually paid it back and two times over but because of skyrocketing interest and interest capitalization and all of the other evil mechanisms of finance capitalism, it's literally impossible to pay back. And so we're asking and demanding uh, cancellation. And then, you know, we like to say that we are demanding abolition or cancellation, not forgiveness, because we have nothing to be sorry for. Because we have the audacity to go to college for folks to try to better themselves or to simply learn something that they're interested in, that is not justification for a lifetime of debt. I love that language, specificity. Forgiveness is something that someone more powerful is generously offering you, and that's not the frame that we're looking at. Right. I wonder, though, then how, how do you respond to the concern that cancellation without systemic reform is going to be insufficient, you know, or is it just like it's a piece of bigger things you want to happen? Yes. Well, that's why we're calling for full student debt cancellation and free college. But the thing that makes it tough is 
for us to have free college, that's going to require legislation. And unfortunately, this Congress is having a tough time getting anything done today. So until we can get to that point, whenever that is, hopefully it's as soon as possible, what President Biden should do is cancel all student debt on his own. So this is not going to be the catch-all solution for higher education, but it's something he can do in the now. And what Biden could do is commit to saying, I'm going to cancel student debt at the end of every semester as long as I'm the president of the United States until Congress can get their act together and pass free college. Mm -hmm. So absolutely canceling student debt is going to right the wrong of this nearly $2 trillion crisis, but it's not the long-term solution. The long-term solution is college for all, and that's what we're fighting for as well. Well, finally, I have been a little bit surprised at the respect that corporate news media have given to the cancellation movement. I'm kind of surprised by it. It's, it's, it's a big paradigm shift. It doesn't necessarily look like reimagining the role of debt overall. So I'm just wary. I'm just wary of, of corporate media. And I wonder... What would you like to see more of or less of? What would help in terms of journalism, in terms of public understanding of student loan debt and the crisis of it? I love this question. I think one, there's too many things to name in a short amount of time, but <laughs> one thing that we you know, have been really trying to push in terms of dealing with corporate media is this understanding, you know, we at the Debt Collective use MMT framing, modern monetary theory, and this understanding that the federal government does not operate like a household budget, right? right? They have the means to do what is necessary if it's improving people's lives. And we see that with endless wars where we always have money to fight wars. And so one thing in particular with the student debt crisis that we've been struggling to get media and, and thereby then their readers to understand is that Cancellation is not going to you know, weigh deeply on taxpayers, which student debtors are taxpayers. In fact, canceling student debt is actually going to boost the economy. It's actually going to create millions of jobs over the next decade. And the reason that is is because the student loans are money that has already gone out the door. And so there's often this conflation that $1.8 trillion in student debt means $1.8 trillion that's going to come out of the pockets of people. And that's actually not how debt cancellation works. In fact, the Debt Collective has bought and erased debt on our own through the secondary market. And what we know is debt literally is worth pennies on the dollar. So one thing that we're trying to push through is this idea that canceling student debt is going to then hurt the economy. The truth is, Student debt is what hurts the economy, and cancellation will improve the lives of, of everyone, whether you have student debt or not. You'll benefit from the housing market booming, people being able to afford rent, putting food on the table, taking care of their children, et cetera. That was Braxton Brewington from the Debt Collective talking with Counterspin in March of 2022. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. The show is engineered by Riley Baer. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.